Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. again and invite us on this August the 9th, this Monday morning to renew our prayers for our brothers and sisters around the world. We don't talk about the persecuted church. We talk about the church in persecution. So it's not new. Um, it's not going to end until Jesus comes back. Christians face persecution in spaces and places in every generation and in including around the world today. And persecution in India is on the rise because Hindu nationalists there who are in power um, are actually calling for anti-Christian violence, violence against Christians, uh, including this statement over the weekend, let us drag people from the church. So uh, India is obviously a heavily, densely populated nation. Christianity is a very small minority. And at issue for Hindu nationalists are efforts by Christians to lead people to conversion, to share the gospel with people that would lead to a transforming encounter with Jesus Christ which you and I would recognize as the way people come to the knowledge of who Christ is and and then find him irresistible, right? Find that grace irresistible. But that would be a, a total subversion of the power dynamics in India where the entire social system is based on people staying in their caste, people not understanding that they are image bearers of the living God, people not living uh, as worthy of equal dignity. And so Hindu nationalists, uh, particularly in one particular party, are are holding rallies to rev up persecution against Christians in India, particularly in more rural parts of the country. And so police stations um, there are already keeping surveillance on Christians, reporting, quote-unquote, conversion activities to authorities. And then these Hindu nationalists are then uh, calling on everyone else to, quote, drag people from the church and stop conversions at any cost. They want to create conversion-free zones. Here's a, here's a direct quote. We will frighten Christians who are involved in conversion work throughout the region. We will not allow missionaries or missionary work to be carried out in Bastar. We will protect the Hindu religion. We will stop these conversions. Let's be praying today for our Christian brothers and sisters uh, in India who bear in that particular place 
the burden of the Great Commission, that they would, in fact, share the good news of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ with their neighbors. All right, fires continue to rage in the western United States. California's Dixie Fire is now the second largest in the state's history. We're going to turn to fires that are raging across southern Europe next when Mindy Bells from World Magazine joins us. We'll be right back. Mindy Bells joins us again from World Magazine, where she writes. You can find her at WNG, that's for World News Group, dot O-R-G, W-N-G dot O-R-G. Mindy, welcome back. Hi, Carmen. You know, it occurs to me that um, you cover, I think they're called opportunities and challenges or something like that, but you really cover the, the high stress points around the world, and so... Um, as we bring things into view today, let me just remind our listeners, sort of, that's Mindy's beat. And so let's always be praying for her as well um, in in this particular labor. Turn our attention, Mindy, if you will, to the fires in Turkey, Greece, Italy, and Spain. Yeah, thank you for that. I do feel a little bit like the fire patrol this morning, but um, there there is just a, a, a lot that we're seeing that seems really unprecedented. Uh, Greece you know, which is is typically this time of year, August is when Europeans go on holiday. This would be high tourist season in Greece, and they have got hundreds of wildfires burning. And even just the outskirts of, of Athens, the, the photos that we're seeing are just apocalyptic of uh, this this orange haze and um and 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 wildfires just really hovering now close to the capital city. Thousands of people evacuated um, their tourism trade, you know, in in disarray completely. And um, and I think, you know, the high temperatures that we're seeing across Europe, they're they're unprecedented. Greece itself has had days of temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, those have dropped some now, and I think that's something that we can just hope and pray for. Is that is that temperatures, as we as we see in the West, you know, the temperatures would ease and that the drought would end, and we would see a change in the weather patterns that are bringing these incredible wildfires. Yeah, the images are really extraordinary, and in the path of each one of those. Uh, you know, fire lines, there are homes and there are animals and there are, um, you know, beautiful things that people ordinarily travel to see. And so there's just a lot going on in in addition to um, the cost at a very individual and family level in terms of homes and businesses. And so let's be praying for um, for folks in 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 all of these places where, frankly, fire rages. Uh, Mindy, let's turn our attention to other kinds of fires. There is uh, the fire of civil war all all revved up in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, we we can't, you know, to to call it a civil war is not truly to get at it because the United States has played such a heavy heavy mm. role, and and we have to remember, you know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm very focused on that right now and looking back and reflecting on it. 
The war in Afghanistan for the United States began in October when we ousted the Taliban from rule. And what we're seeing now is, is really, I think, just a tragedy unfolding after the United States has spent trillions of dollars, lost thousands of men and women to that conflict. Um, we are seeing all of that rolled back. And the Taliban most recently, um, just over the last few days, has taken control of Kunduz. And that's a city in the north that is considered a vital trade and commercial center about 350, 400,000 people live there. Uh, the Taliban overtook the city. And um, and that that's sort of the first key. Uh, there aren't there aren't a lot of key urban centers in Afghanistan. And that's one of the first that they've been able to successfully or, or appear to successfully have taken control of. Meanwhile, the United States is making clear they really don't intend to, to do very much about this. Um, President Joe Biden has said that we're done, that we're um, we we. But I, I do want to stress that even as he is telling the American people that we're done, the United States, our air forces are regularly supporting the Afghan army and trying to roll back uh, the Taliban advances. And, and basically, I think we are um, we're doing we're doing too little to help. And we're just not going to be able to stop this march that is happening. And I think even if there is a truce, there is a settlement, the Taliban takes over certain parts of the country, but the Afghan government is able to hold, say, Kabul, the capital city. I think we're looking at a situation that's going to be devastating for Afghan people. Um, mm -hmm. The Taliban represents poverty. The Taliban represents Islamic jihadism in its most extreme form. Afghanistan is a country that is dominated now by people who are 30 and under demographically. And um, they are people who don't remember Taliban rule. And they're about to find out what it looks like. They are people who have, you know, women who have gone to universities, women who have taken to the airwaves, broadcasting and, and being journalists like you and me. And uh, own their own businesses and things like that. The Taliban represents the end of that. And so we're about to see this incredible clash that could lead to the civil war that you're talking about or could lead to simply some kind of truce that I think is going to be really hard on the Afghan people who've been through so much um, that it just, it, you know, it, it begs for our, our compassion there. It is such a sad um, situation and scenario. Thank you for uh, helping us understand what's happening there. Uh, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I'd love for you to spend some time reflecting on the situation in Lebanon. Uh, we just passed the one-year anniversary of the devastating explosion there in the port, but there's a whole lot more going on uh, in Lebanon and and now with Hezbollah and Israel. So that all of that is going to be up next here. Mindy Bells and I will continue our conversation. You can find her at worldmagwng.org. We'll be right back. I read uh, this morning in the Washington Post an update on what's happening in Lebanon. But joining us right now, we have an opportunity to talk with Mindy Bells from World Magazine, who follows um, these events very, very closely. And so, Mindy, 
maybe reflect on the one year anniversary of the explosion, but also on this just crazy economic devolution that the people of Lebanon are experiencing? Yeah, Lebanon, uh, we, people used to refer to Beirut as, you know, the Paris of the Middle East. It's a beautiful city uh, situated right on the Mediterranean with a beautiful walkway along there. And um, and it was the place that people in the Middle East, the, the wealthy Gulf sheikhs and others came and vacationed and uh, was very lively. And, and one of the reasons that it has had that character is that it is unique in the Middle East as being... Uh, evenly divided country among the Christian Muslim population and Christians there have dominated the arts and have had a, a large role in, in government that they've not had in other countries in the Middle East in recent decades. All of that has changed. And we've watched this slow, slow, slow um, crumbling, I would say, uh, in Lebanon, both culturally, politically, and uh, economically. Then we had the explosion a year ago, and I arrived in Beirut to cover that situation just a few days after it happened. And the scene was just incredibly devastating. You had this explosion in the in the port. It is a main port, not only serving Lebanon, but much of the Middle East. And um, I, I was taken to a quarantine hotel, Carmen, that was six miles away from the blast site. When I got to the hotel, the wall of glass uh, in the hotel lobby was completely gone from the blast. That's how powerful it was. And so it has devastated the city. A third of the city has experienced some kind of physical, you know, glass is gone, buildings have been destroyed or pancaked or crumbled or some way they're uninhabitable, unusable. Two major hospitals and uh, were taken out. And uniquely, this blast site was very near the the city's old ancient Christian community where many of its ongoing churches are located. And so they were very near the blast. And that's, that's a good and a bad thing because a number of them, I visited a number of them, they continue to be very integral to the recovery. But the key point here is that the government has done zero or less than zero to recover from this explosion. And so you now have in Lebanon nearly 80% of the country living in poverty. That is from a country that we could think of as at one point almost as affluent as France or other parts of Western Europe. And they are uh, dependent on outside help. The churches are dependent on a number of aid groups, aid groups like Samaritan's Purse and others that have been very much part of sort of supporting the churches as the churches are helping the population. And it looks like this in Lebanon today, the port. I mean, I'm so sad to see these pictures. The blast site hasn't changed. It hasn't been cleaned up. It hasn't been restored in any way. Um, the buildings that have been repaired, that has been done by, again, outside help or local homegrown efforts, not a government program of any sort. The churches are still working. I was in touch with a number of them last week. But they're beleaguered. Uh, what they face now as the economy has continued to devolve is, um, is power outages and subsidies that are being cut. And so quite literally, hospitals that are caring for COVID patients in Beirut, they can't release them to go home because they have no electricity at home to power like a mobile uh, oxygen supply or to take care of, of, of sick people 
people. And so we're just seeing this, this incredible humanitarian disaster unfold in one of one of the most influential cities in that part of the world. Um, and it's really tragic. And, and it just seems like there is a lot that an international effort could do to help there and a lot that we could do to to sort of combat some of the uh, political issues that are driving um, this kind of devastation. Mindy, um, also in relationship to Lebanon, uh, we have headlines related to Hezbollah. Remind us um, who and what Hezbollah is and what is happening in relationship or between Hezbollah and Israel, because this is another, you know, hotspot. Right. And it is directly linked to what I've been describing in Lebanon. Hezbollah, uh, over the decades since the end of, of Lebanon's civil war um, in in the late 90s or early 2000s, Hezbollah grew um, in, in terms of its role inside Lebanon. The United States uh, considers Hezbollah a terrorist organization. Israel does as well because of the kinds of things we're seeing right now. They regularly fire missiles and launch attacks into um, into Israel. It is an Iranian-backed, uh, Palestinian-dominated terror organization that has also managed to work its way into the government in Lebanon. So you have you have sort of this, the civil side of Hezbollah that actually has a large block of members in, in the parliament and in leadership in the country. And that is driving the kind of devastation that I've been describing. But one of the things that we're seeing is at the same time that the country is just falling apart, Hezbollah is launching hundreds and hundreds of rockets in these waves into northern Israel, the latest striking in Upper Galilee and um uh, near the border areas. And, and interestingly, you know, these are areas that are, that have some of the largest to sort Christian towns and large Christian populations in Israel. Um, also areas that if you remember back during the political crisis in Israel, a few months back, those were areas that were sort of, uh, restive and saw a lot of protests. We even saw some hotels burned and things like that. Um, so, so it's an area that's kind of under siege right now. I think Israel takes their security seriously and they have fired back and they, um, they have an anti-missile system that is very successful in sort of avoiding the damage, but, but it has been sort of, again, a hot kind of a fire season there at the border area. I want to encourage you, if you're listening right now, to check out all of the headlines at World. You can find it at WNG.org. Mindy, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carmen, for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. A lot of people suffer uh, trauma. We have talked about post-traumatic stress. We have talked about what PTSD feels like. We have talked about the ways in which each and every one of us enters into the lives of those who are hurting. We have talked about soul wounds. You have asked for more equipping in this area. And so we're going to be joined today by the American Bible Society's um, Phil Monroe. He heads up 
the Trauma Healing Institute. We're going to talk about how each and every one of us and our churches can be equipped to help our communities find hope through Bible-based trauma healing. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. If you see your troubles as opportunities to trust God and His ability to multiply what you give Him, then even the smallest incidents take on significance. Turn and look at the one standing next to you. Count first on Christ. He can help you do the impossible. You simply need to give Him what you have and watch Him work. Jesus took the loaves. When Jesus fed the 5,000 hungry people, He didn't have to use the loaves. He made manna for the Israelites. He could have done it again. Instead, he chose to use the single basket of the small boy. What's in your basket? God can take a small thing and do a big thing. If God can turn a basket into a buffet, don't you think he can do something with your five loaves and two fishes of faith? This is Max Lucado. All right, joining me now, Dr. Phil Monroe. He is a psychologist. He's the director of the Trauma Healing Institute at the American Bible Society. He is a visiting professor of counseling at Missio Seminary, on and on and on and on. He, um, he certainly knows the subject matter we're talking about today, and he's going to help equip us to help our communities find hope through Bible-based trauma healing. Phil, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be here. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Let's um, let's start with something a little bit uh, diagnostic. So here will be the question. Doctor, 18 months into the mess that we call COVID, how are we really doing? Well, that's a great question. And of course, there's a wide range of answers there. But I think we can say with great confidence that a lot of people are still hurting. There are those who are really anxious about getting back to work or having their kids go to school this fall. There are others who are unsure whether they want to be vaccinated. There are others still who are still reeling economically and haven't been able to pay their rent and don't have the jobs that they need in order to put food on the table. And then many of us have struggled to get back to church in places where we feel safe and comfortable because we're just not sure if there's another wave coming. Yeah, and I think we'd add to that all of the relational stress that's piled up, um, all of the missed, the things that individuals missed out on and families missed doing. And, you know, in, in addition to Absolutely. all of the grief, there's a lot of grief. And, you know, fran- and frankly, you know, everybody got fat. I don't know if you've noticed that. But like, I mean, just, <laughs> just, just a lot. There's just a lot. There are literally layers and layers and layers of the ways in which we're not doing very well 18 months into this. Um, I think that as people of faith, we want to be people of hope. We want uh, not only to you know embrace the hope available to us as Christians, but we want to extend that to others. And I feel like, you know, there was this like 
light at the proverbial end of the tunnel and everybody was hanging their hope on things getting back to normal, Mm -hmm. it feels like now with uh, the Delta variant, it feels like that light's been turned off. So so talk with us about that just in terms of how we address this new sense of, well, we don't have a hope in that now, so we got to find a better hope. You're absolutely right. And it can be so depleting, defeating, demoralizing to think you're almost there. And no, you're not. And even when you do come out on the other side, oftentimes we look around and we really then are only able to take stock of what we lost, of what is not going to return back to some previous normal. Um, that is an important part of actually beginning the healing journey is beginning to acknowledge the wounds, the losses, the griefs, the traumas that we've experienced and that others have experienced. Um, That really is a huge part of uh, actually our journey of people of faith is lamenting. And thankfully, the Lord has given us tons of uh, words in scripture from a third of the Psalms to Lamentations, to the book of Job, to even Jesus' cries of lament. We are made to lament, to bring our complaints to God and to our neighbors. And that's really part of the way forward for us all. All right, so that actually gets us into the conversation about what is Bible-based trauma healing and how it's different than secular options. Maybe we take a step back and define trauma. Trauma is, in simple terms, a wound of the heart that takes a long time to heal. It, It can not be so much an event, but the experience of a difficult event that left us feeling helpless, horror, or just a a sense that life was never able to get back, um, where we maybe felt like we lost our voice. So there's lots of different things that can cause trauma, everything from an interpersonal betrayal, like an assault or rape, but also things like a sudden loss and death, or a sense that maybe people around us uh, died, but we are surviving and we feel guilty about that. All of these things can be something that creates trauma And when we know we have trauma, usually there are some things that are happening. First off, we find ourselves reliving this awful event or events. We find ourselves trying to shut it down, just not being able to try not to think about it. And maybe we shut it down with drugs or food or Netflix or something that we're just trying not to think. But it keeps coming back. And so we find ourselves in this always on alert state, um, irritable Uh, looking for the next thing to fall apart. And so that's where, you know, I think we can recognize if we are there ourselves, like we probably know that about ourselves. Um, But we also, it's, it's pretty easy for us to recognize it in other people. Like it's really easy for me to recognize when someone who I love, who I'm around enough to know them well, um, is, not operating in the present moment. There, what, what, there's something in the past that has intruded into the present in a way that has disrupted whatever is actually going on in the present. And so when I experience that, you know, part of what I would like to be equipped to do is know how to take that next step. Um, how do I say it feels like there's something going on right now that doesn't have anything to do with what's going on right now? 
Um, I don't even know if that's appropriate. Like help help me be more equipped to help others um, move toward what we're talking about in terms of a healing journey. Right. You're so right. It's easier to see in some people and there are some that are much more obvious, but maybe you're seeing it in somebody who just is shut down. This is a person who used to be someone who was talkative, extroverted, but now they seem to be shut down, isolated, disconnected. Um, Their emotions are muted. Um, Other places, maybe they're angry all of a sudden, explosively so, and then uh, going back into isolation again. So one of the things that we can do just as a friend is, of course, to acknowledge something's happening, saying, can we talk? I'd love to be able to hear what's going on for you. And there are three simple questions that you could ask that we use in our our Bible-based trauma healing program is, what's happening or what happened? How is that making you feel? What's been the hardest part? Those three simple questions can help someone open up and begin to talk about what's been blocked up inside them. Mm, That's so good. All right. uh, So let me direct people to the website so that they can find uh, resources that we're discussing today. You guys can check out traumahealinginstitute.org. It is a ministry of the American Bible Society. We are talking with Dr. Phil Monroe, who heads up the Trauma Healing Institute um, for the ABS. So um, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, Let's let's dig around into what is Bible-based trauma healing and, and how does it differ or what differentiates it from maybe more secular options. So that conversation up next with Dr. Phil Monroe. We'll be right back. We are healed by your sacrifice. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Phil Monroe from the American Bible Society's Trauma Healing Institute. Um, So, Phil, what is the Trauma Healing Institute? What is Bible-based trauma healing? And what differentiates it from maybe more secular options? Great question. So, Bible-based trauma healing brings together biblical material about our suffering along with basic mental health practices together into uh, a curriculum that allows people to come together and to discover what the Bible has to offer for us in our time of pain and our look for hope and healing. Um, The Bible is about restoring hope and restoring our hearts. And so we want to bring those two things together so that people can understand what's going on inside them. Um, this trauma healing program actually is a gift to us in the United States from Africa. It began in the late 1990s after the civil war in uh, Congo, when pastors were wondering, what can we do to help our people? And out of that, these lessons were formed, um, and it allows people to look at their culture, their faith, the scriptures to practice some basic things that can help them begin the healing journey. And so the Trauma Healing Institute has been supporting that, and uh, American Bible Society has been supporting that effort since 2010 to help build out now about 20,000 facilitators who have been certified to use the materials for children, for teens, for adults all around the world. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate that it's global in nature. I also appreciate that it that this is one of those gifts of brothers and sisters in Christ in another part of the world that has flowed back to the United States of America. And I love that. I love that the leading edge of evangelism and discipleship, um, you know, where we once may have thought, okay, it, it's just going to go out geographically from uh, you know, from Jerusalem to Samaria and and beyond there to the ends of the earth, and that would have been here. And then you know, we had this hundred years where the gospel flowed from here, the U.S., you know, back to the rest of the world as the ends of the earth. But I really feel like the resources that are coming into the conversation today from the church around the world are often just exactly what we need at just the right time. And so thank you for um, that part of this story as well. Um, yeah, it's yeah, been really helpful. So when we talk about Bible-based trauma healing, um, one of the things that you touched on already is lament, bringing our complaints to God. What would other parts of uh, of the conversation include? Well, yes, starting to bring our laments to God, but even in our laments is an act of worship because it is a talking to God about our pain and talking to our neighbors and really honoring each other uh, in the grief journey that um, anybody who's suffering trauma is going through. And so we are able to uh, help people begin to express that to each other, but then bring their pain to God. Um, We in the trauma healing uh, program have a, a small ceremony that helps people express their pain to God, to bring it, to really nail it to the cross. And now this isn't a magical event. This isn't a once and done kind of thing any more than it is going to church on Sunday and repeating the Lord's Prayer. It really is an attempt to say, Lord, you know, you see, you have participated in suffering with me and I give it back to you. So that's one Uh, helpful activity. But then as people begin to heal, they may find that they need to talk about things like, how do I live in uh, relationship with people who have harmed me? How do I forgive? How do I deal with uh, topical issues such as domestic abuse or addictions or suicide and things like that, that also are related to this topic of trauma? It's it's so hard to imagine. Um, some of the places and spaces in the world where, you know, neighbors have literally butchered each other. And yet they can, they can in Christ live in community on the other side of that. It's, it's, it's so hard for us to um, imagine the grief that people have experienced in some places. And yet I look at the hostility between neighbors here in the United States. I look at the, uh, the deep divisions that we have here. And I say to myself, you know, we cut people up with rhetoric um, and we cut people up on social media and we cancel one another in the culture in ways that are, you know, frankly, just as effective uh, in many cases in terms of tearing people down in their spirit and in community um, as as has happened elsewhere. So when we talk about the trauma that people maybe are experiencing here in huge numbers, um, it is not quite like uh, the the trauma that people have experienced in other parts of the world, but the answers are the same. I would totally agree. Having traveled to Rwanda and uh, met with my brothers and sisters there who have gone through a genocide in 1994, where they did literally cut each other up 
uh, over 100 days and a million people lost their lives. I have watched how they've healed and, you know, in similar ways, they had to set aside rhetoric. They had to see each other as humans made in the image of God, people of great beauty and value to God and therefore to each other and begin to listen to each other, begin to see each other as people, not as objects or as belief systems. Mm, So good. So I've read an article that uh, you have posted at the Christian Post. If folks want to read it, uh, you can go to christianpost.com. The article is Hope and Happiness. We're beginning to heal, but are we thriving? Um, Talk with us uh, about the difference or the distance between, you know, sort of hope and moving in the direction of hope and actual thriving. And then if you would, offer to people the three things that we can do even when life is hard and it's not as we expected it to be? Yeah, I think I'll start with a little example. Probably most of us have had some physical injury that we needed to recover from. And a wound of the heart is not unlike uh, that kind of injury. And maybe you knew that it was going to take some time and you had a cast on or something like that that hindered you from really starting to you know, begin to work that part of the body again. But after a while, you began to exercise again, and you realized just how far you had to go to get back to something that might resemble normalcy. And most of us at that time can feel a little bit depressed or discouraged. Um, You know, it it takes time. We may not be thriving. We may be doing some of the things we used to do, but we still feel under the heavy weight of the pandemic and the things that were lost in our relationships, that were lost in our society and our culture over the same period of time. We might wonder if our friends are really our friends anymore, right? Um, So what can we do in order to flourish? Well, it's flourishing is not just something that happens to you. It's something you actually have to actively go get. Um, you have to really take hold of. And the same thing with hope. Hope is not a passive state that comes to you. You have to go pursue it. So actually the way up is down. And that is to acknowledge our wounds, something I talked about a little bit before, where we are able to acknowledge what is lost and listen to the losses of others. And some of those losses that others may speak of, especially people who might not be in our communities, are things that we might be resistant and hesitant to hear. But I would encourage each other to hold space for that. But as we acknowledge what we've lost, the Bible is also replete with stories of what God has done in the past. And we have our own stories, right? We have our stories that we can tell. And actually, part of the healing process is telling the story of loss and survival. Well, you know, this is what Joseph does. What you intended for evil, God has intended for good. So it doesn't mean that everything that happened to us is good, but there is a story of God's care for us in the process. And to do all this, to lament and to tell these stories, we need our community, right? So find people around you, who can be your body of Christ, who will do these things with and for you. This is essential. We cannot go it alone. Yeah, trauma recovery is not something, uh, this journey of healing is not something that happens all by ourselves, even in the, you know, even in the quiet uh, with the Lord, our God. So we want to encourage you, um, if you are experiencing or have experienced trauma, um, 
we would love for you to access the trauma healing that is available, traumahealinginstitute.org. Maybe you are a part of a worshiping community where you might like to bring this into the life of your church. Uh, There's ways to do that as well. There are 20,000 facilitators equipped worldwide in the um, uh, in the practice of Bible-based trauma healing through the American Bible Society's trauma healing ministry. Dr. Phil Monroe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back. All righty, guard your heart and your mind today in Christ Jesus our Lord. Be a person of peace and be a person of prayer today. Acknowledge that God created you in his image and he loves you very much. He loves you very much, so much so that he sent his only son. Let's give him all the glory due his name today. Have a great- Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.